2: Hello, I'm Daniel, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. In this podcast, we were joined by Rana Faruha, who's an award-winning Financial Times global business columnist, and she is the author of Don't Be Evil, The Case Against Big Tech which, as you can tell, is an expose of the evils of big tech companies like Google and Facebook and the threat that big tech poses to our democracies, to our economies and to ourselves. Rana Faruha was interviewed by Roz Irwin, who's a journalist at the Sunday Times, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode.
0: Hello, I'm Roz Irwin. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Rana Faruha. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I was hoping first you could talk us through how you had the idea for the book, because it's a lovely, <laughs> it's a lovely anecdote. And I, and I thought it was really interesting because it was so
1: personal, this book.
0: Yeah. Yet, obviously, it's not a personal subject.
1: Yeah. Well, I've covered economics, business and technology for almost 30 years. So I'm I'm kind of knee deep in the, in the nitty gritty of it all. But... I started getting interested in the business model of what I call surveillance capitalism when I came home one day a couple of years ago, opened up a credit card bill, and noticed all these tiny charges in ninety $3 increments. And I looked and I thought, they're all from the App Store. How odd. I haven't been buying that much stuff from the App Store. And I thought, well, who else has my password? Ding! My ten-year-old son, Alex, (laughs) he's now thirteen, and and we've put quite a few parental controls on technology since then. But basically, what had happened is he had become addicted to an online soccer game, and it was a game that was given away for free. You know, and I put that in quotation marks because a lot of these games seem to be free, but what's happening is they're harvesting your data, they're following your patterns, they may be selling it to advertisers, but they may also be selling you things in the game. So. Using something called um, persuasive technology, which was actually developed at a Stanford lab called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, these games were pulling Alex down this rabbit hole. And so he would be playing and then think, oh, if I just had virtual Ronaldo, I could be better. My team would be greater. Buy a new kit and you'd be clicking and clicking on these icons and that was real money. And so it was a measure of how insidious the marketing technique was that he didn't really understand that he was spending money. He was spending so much time online with the game that he had a chance to rack up over $900 worth of charges in the course of a month, which he had to make up. Uh, we we cut a deal, actually. He and his father and I, we each paid a third. He had to earn his $300 uh, with lemonade stands. So <laughs> that was that was how that ended. But basically, I thought, this is an incredible new business model. I have to understand everything about it.
0: But what's so fascinating is what he was buying on some level, at least in some of our minds, doesn't really exist, right? That's
1: right. That's right. But, you know, even if you're not a kid playing a game, there are all kinds of virtual fashion wear, virtual merchandise that you can buy. I mean, people live increasingly in a virtual world. It's interesting because the World Health Organization recently put video game addiction on their list of real mental illnesses. And that's, you know, we can go deeper into that. But this is very much the fabric of our lives.
0: And your book, obviously, the title is that famous, well, you borrow that famous Google slogan, don't be evil, that they rather seem perhaps, (laughs) I might argue, to have forgotten. But what I wanted you to do is trace how it is that we had companies that started off with what appear to be very noble aims, uh, certainly with a libertarian bent, but, but, you know, noble aims. And they don't seem quite to embody those values anymore,
1: I feel a lot of people would say. Well, it's interesting. There's a bit of a mythology about the valley, and that's that, oh, it was this sort of easygoing, hippie place where people just wanted to connect the world and make everything better. There was always that element in the 60s. But if you go back... A lot of Silicon Valley was actually connected to the U.S. Defense Department. And that's a point, in fact, that Mariana Mazzucato, a professor at the University of London, makes that many of these technologies, the Internet, touchscreen, GPS, were actually funded by the U.S. Defense Department. So it's sort of sad in a way that taxpayers didn't get their cut of this. But back to your question, you have – the hippie bent colliding with this sort of government data industrial complex, colliding with the 80s, which is really when consumer technology, first Apple and, and Microsoft individual computers began to take off, and then later the smartphone and the internet in the mid 1990s. And during that time, there were changes happening within the political economy. You know, the idea was that government is the problem, not the solution, greed is goods. So you had a generation of people that are now running these companies, people like Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Eric Schmidt, coming of age at a time when libertarianism was kind of the law of the land, you know, move fast and disrupt things, break it and worry about the consequences for society later. And in fact, it's almost as if some of these companies feel that society itself is in the way in terms of what they might disrupt. Let's start with Google. I sort
0: of seems it seems a logical one. And um, you say in the book, Google's true sin may simply
1: be hub- hubris. Sorry, what do you mean by that? Mm. Well, if you go back to the original paper that Larry Page and Sergey Brin wrote about search in 1998. It's interesting. It shows them in a totally different place. They were graduate students at Stanford at that time. They laid out in this academic paper what this giant search engine might look like, what it would do, and then eventually how it might be monetized. And you have to read all the way to the end of that paper into an appendix section. There's a section called Advertising and its Discontents. And they talk about how one way to fund such a search engine might be highly targeted advertising where people's data would be harvested and then advertisers would be able to pinpoint us with extreme degree of of understanding and sell us things. And they said that that model would inevitably come into conflict with the best interest of the users because what was in the company's interests, or whatever entities might be trying to reach out to you, perhaps a public entity, a government, wouldn't necessarily be in the user's best interest. And so they actually said that they thought there should be some kind of academic open source search engine. But then, of course, once the IPO starts to come around and the venture capitalists want to know where the money is coming in – Well, they caved. And so something highly targeted advertising that they thought kind of was evil in the beginning became the business model. And I think that with that, becoming some of the first um, paper billionaires in the valley, uh, just came a certain sense of righteousness and untouchability that has led to some of the problems that we have now.
0: You mentioned surveillance capitalism and actually I interviewed Shoshana Mm. Zuboff for this exact podcast – and one of the things she talked about that I, that's really sort of stuck with me is that, you know, there, a lot of people have said, if you're not paying for it, you're the product. But yeah. she goes one step further <laughs> that we're not the product, we're the raw materials. Yeah. And we are certainly that, it would appear, for that advertising model where it becomes so targeted at us that all of our data is that
1: raw material. A hundred percent. And what's frightening is that. This model used to be something that was mainly practiced just by Google and Facebook, which, as we in the press know, came in, essentially destroyed the advertising business model. As we know, it took 90% of that pie and have now become giant advertising companies with some content attached. The inputs are free. That's why their profit margins have been so so high. I mean, imagine if GM didn't have to pay for steel or if BP didn't have to actually Pay anything to, to mine the oil uh, that, that it gets. That's what we're looking at with these firms. But but now that model is coming out into every industry. It's coming into healthcare, into finance, into retail. So just as an example, Starbucks knows quite a lot about you. It has an incredible data gathering system. So you may be using a Starbucks card. They have lots of information. Every time you make a purchase, they know geographically where you are. That information can be sold to other advertisers. Johnson & Johnson makes a lot of retail products. They know about you. Uh, Google is now going to be offering checking accounts. Facebook and Amazon are already in that business. Same again with healthcare. So there's this data in increasingly sensitive areas, not just that you bought a lovely pink scarf the other day and here are three more scarves you might like to buy, but we know your blood type. We know what illnesses you may have had in the past. We know how much is in your checking account. And so that can lead not only to a whole new area of surveillance and sales, but it could potentially lead to what I'm very worried about is some bias, some algo racism. I mean, think about – Think about insurance, for example. There are already insurance firms that are putting sensors all around people's homes and gathering the data. And so they'll know – I live in a 1901 townhouse. They'll know if I've taken care of my old pipes and maybe I'll get a discount for that. But if my 17-year-old daughter is smoking pot in her bedroom, then maybe I'll be downgraded because of the fire hazard. What that does is it takes what was a collective model and turns it into a very, very individual model. Now, what happens to the people that – can't be insured at all. Who picks up that tab? The and part, state? Of,
0: part of the point of insurance was always that the risk is across a population,
1: right? So some of us obviously will never use it, but some people will profoundly use it. That's and right. That's kind of the model of insurance. That's kind of the. And you know, it, you're lucky enough to live in a country with national health care, but in the US, I mean, this could really be taken to some scary, scary places. I can imagine if people know that you've had a previous illness, you might not be able to get any insurance. Mm, which is rather terrifying.
0: You did, of course, yourself consider working at Google. And I found that fascinating, <laughs> but you were rapidly put <laughs> off. Talk, talk oh, us God. through that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, just the fact that you have to sign an NDA to walk upstairs just completely rubbed me the wrong way as a journalist, I have to say. I did not sign that NDA, which is why you can now read this, about this anecdote in this book. But I, uh, I did get upstairs to the cafeteria, which was lush. I, I have to say, those mounds of fresh blueberries that seemed like they were picked yesterday are pretty amazing. But,
0: but the NDA, element. It's fascinating. I think Twitter does that as well, that yeah. they make you sign something before you even go in there. And that seems quite questionable to me. Same, I have the same objection as a journalist.
1: It, well, it is. And it also speaks to the, the fundamental hypocrisy of these companies. Everything should be free unless it's theirs. You know, they want Everybody's content to be free, that they don't want any of us to be using paywalls. I mean, one of the stupidest things the media industry ever did was give it away for free, you know, and now we're trying to desperately claw it back, but it's too late. But anyway, I did indeed interview for a job. It it was interesting because the job description told me a lot about Google as a company at that point this was several years ago and they were maybe 50 60,000 employees at the time they're around about 100 now 100,000 they were hiring some high level PR people from media to go around and sort of act as almost body men for the top brass and follow around various top executives and collect their thoughts and sort of you know their ideas about what the company should be doing and then share them not with the public or with the press but with other executives, which to me was fascinating because I thought, all right, you can't just walk down the hallway and talk to each other. There is a communication problem in this company. In a communication company. In, itself, a, yeah. in a communications company. It also told me, wow, this is a company that still thinks of itself as a very small company when in fact it is a huge, huge Global conglomerate and monopolist. And I think that that is still something that trips these companies up. You know, they come out, and many of us in the media wonder why do they come again and again and make these PR debacles? You know, every time Mark Zuckerberg opens his mouth, it just seems like it's a terrible idea. Why does that happen? I think it's because they do not perceive themselves the way we perceive them. I remember talking to a, a strategy person at Google and saying, well, how does it feel to be a monopolist? You guys started in you know somebody's um, dorm room at Stanford. And she said, well, gosh, we don't feel like we're too big. We feel like we're competing against others all the time. Well – Yes. The others are Amazon and Facebook (laughs) and Apple, maybe. So there's a sense of themselves that is very divorced from the way everybody else thinks of them.
0: Yes. And one of the things that's always struck me about tech companies on a journalistic level, they're a nightmare to deal with. Indeed. I, I used to cover banks. Banks partly because of the financial crisis are very well resourced in terms of if yeah. you approach them, you get an answer, you get swift responses on things. Tech companies will tell you that they have not had long enough to answer your questions <laughs> when they're a $1 trillion company. I mean, I'm talking about Amazon here. And I find that astonishing. You think you're the biggest company in the world or one of them, right? How How is it that 24 hours isn't long
1: enough for you? I, I have 100% had the exact same experience as have many of my colleagues. And I have often wondered the same thing. Thing. And how long does it take until you get enough of those queries, and you think, "Hey, maybe I should actually have a, a decent-sized PR and strategy department." I had a, cu- a couple fascinating insights to share there. I, when I was working years ago at Time Magazine, we wanted to do a cover story on Marissa Mayer, who had taken over Yahoo. She was one of the, the founding sort of you know top dozen or so people at, at Google. And she'd taken over Yahoo, and this was a big deal story. Can she revitalize this old line uh, tech company and turn it into something new? And I was very sympathetic, frankly. I mean, I, I liked her. i I wanted to do a positive story. Her PR team was so tight. They wanted to orchestrate everything from the list of questions, like in advance of a day-long interview, to how she could be photographed, to whether or not we could mention the fact that she had a husband and what he did. I mean, you've never seen anything like it. And it's, it's something that in my nearly 30 years of business journalism, I have never – had anybody at the top rungs of any other industry demand so much coverage. We eventually had to trash the cover and just say we can't do this because it's not going to meet our journalistic specifications. A couple months later, she then did a cover for Vogue, which was all about her posing in, you know, beautiful couture gowns, no hardball questions. So I just thought, wow, these folks don't even realize that they're hurting themselves by holding so tightly and trying to be so controlling. But again, I think that they live in a bubble world in which they can control everything. I'm also thinking – and this anecdote is is actually in the book – of a time that I met the two founders of Google at Davos. I had been going for years as part of my economics and, and financial coverage. And several years ago, right around the time that they had just acquired YouTube, they called this secret last-minute meeting. It was like 20 minutes before everybody was given the coordinates of some chalet that they had taken over on the, on the mountain. And we all run over there, and there's Sergey and Larry, and I think Eric was there too. And they're all sort of sitting on things that look like beach balls or ice cubes, and they're free skittles, and you know, just, just exactly how you would imagine the place had been kitted out. And the talk was basically about how, don't worry, we're not going to disrupt the print publishing model. I mean, they were telling us what we wanted to hear. And being journalists, who you know, we can sometimes be navel-gazing, and we were asking all these questions about the future of news. And But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, gosh, this isn't really just about the future of news. It's kind of about the future of democracy, because if there's not a fourth estate to cover what's happening, how are people going to be informed? How are we going to make decisions? And I raised my hand sort of timidly at the end and asked that question. I said, isn't this really about democracy? And I remember Larry Page kind of swirling around and giving me a funny look and saying, yeah, we have a lot of people thinking about that. You know, next question. And I just thought, wow, well, I guess they haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Ten years on. <laughs> well, quite.
0: Um, you did mention uh, YouTube there, which obviously Google owns. You have a really interesting story in there about a former engineer who worked there and um, Gillem Chazlot. That's right. I don't quite know how to say his name. Yeah, um, Chazlot. And now he works at the Center of
1: Humane Technology, which is rather <laughs> telling, isn't it? Could you tell us what his experience was? Yeah, the, the Center for Humane Technology is a fascinating place. It's sort of where recovering techies go to dry out and 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 repent for their sins. It was actually started by a guy who's also in the book named Tristan Harris. And Tristan was a serial entrepreneur. He's a young guy, really smart. And he'd gone to Google. Google had acquired his his last company and he went in and he wanted to work on trying to make technology more humane and he became one of Google's ethics officers. Well, eventually he felt that they didn't have any ethics. So he was going to have to go outside and start this center to try and create technologies that were not leading people to either spend $900 on a video game or go down sort of hate filter bubbles. And is, um is there as well now. And when he was working, he told me an interesting story. When he was working at YouTube, he began to notice, as did some other engineers, that people were trapped in these filter bubbles. So if you've used YouTube, you know you click on a cat video, you're going to get more cat videos. If you click on some – racist political memes, you're going to get more of those too. And so it's very easy for people to be dragged down what are called filter bubbles. And that's one of the reasons why we're getting the kind of polarization that has led to Brexit, that has led to Donald Trump, that is leading to things like genocide in Myanmar. So this is a big, big issue. And He had begun to notice that this was happening prior to the election, and he actually went to some folks at the company and said, let's see if we can have a win-win here where we could offer people a broader range of content, not just take them where we know they want to click, but let's expose them to a broader range of content. And then the business upside is that maybe we will have a longer and richer relationship with them, and maybe we can actually create more areas of content that they might then want to go to. So they actually ran some experiments on this and tried this as a business model, and it was successful. They did have a, a, you know profitable user figures, but they weren't as profitable as taking people down filter bubbles, so they didn't change the model. Now, since then, YouTube says that it is experimenting with trying to introduce people to new kinds of content and it's changed its algorithms – it's hard to say whether they have or not because guess what? It's still a black box. There is no public accountability. We don't know what they have or don't have. We don't know what's going on at Facebook or YouTube because they're not forced to release any of that information. Yeah.
0: Obviously, you've touched a little bit on fake news there. It does logically bring us to Facebook. Um and what do you think, I mean, in terms of Mark Zuckerberg's thinking, you, you rightly said earlier that every time he opens his mouth, he doesn't help himself. What do you think Facebook actually perceives, since it's had a pretty catastrophic last three years, perhaps, yeah. or slightly longer? What do you think internally, the company thinks hmm.
1: has happened? That's an interesting question. I suspect that there are probably two or three narratives going on. I think one... One scenario would be they're getting hit with so much on a really almost minute by minute basis. There's a scandal every day, and in fact, you know, it's. I worried at various points in the writing of this book. Oh God, the, you know, the, the the fake news story has peaked, or the techlash story has peaked. My book's going to be too late. Well, no, <laughs> you know, it's like next week there'll be something even bigger. Yeah, I can guarantee it. But this reflects the point that you flicked at, which is just an immaturity, a lack of corporate governance. There's still a very, very tiny funnel at the top. I mean, pretty much all decisions at Facebook are still being made by about two people. And so they simply cannot deal with the onslaught of problems that are coming from 2 billion users in dozens of countries. That's one thing. I think the other thing is that they just haven't thought more deeply about their mission. You know that Mark Zuckerberg always said the mission was to connect the world. Well, okay. You know, Neil Ferguson the historian wrote a book called The Tower and the Square where he says, well, the printing press was a great idea too. That connected people, but first we had 150 years of religious wars. And so you kind of have to get through that period of disruption And unfortunately, the tech czars don't seem to think that helping us get through that period and find solutions is their business. They keep looking to governments, which, you know, and I agree that governments should be setting parameters, but they blame governments for not taking any action whilst they offshore their tax money, you know, starve national governments of resources, monetize the things that were taxpayer funded. It's just there's a hypocrisy there that is so deep. Yeah, yeah. It's now time for a quick break.
2: Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows.
0: Let's think about regulation, then. What is it? I mean, there isn't what always surprises me is there isn't more of a push in politics for better regulation of Mm -hmm. tech. There is some. Yeah. And you see that with Elizabeth Warren in in the US. But There's also a lot of pushback against that. Why has that not got more? Why is
1: it more politicians behind it? Well, it's interesting, you know, you brought up covering the financial crisis and, and the financial industry. I think there's some analogies there. Both industries are very complicated, right? So you have to have a certain level of understanding to think about how to regulate them. And unfortunately, there really aren't that many politicians or even in the states, even political aides that really understand. I think in the UK, there's a a political class that is actually a bit better informed about these things. And certainly in Europe, there are people that are really studying, Okay. How can we create a new ecosystem? I think it's quite fascinating actually uh, what Margaret Vestager is doing in terms of saying, you know what? If there's a competition problem, let's put the burden of proof on the larger companies. Let's not make a tiny startup go out of business trying to hire lawyers to prove that it's been infringed upon by Google. Maybe let's shift that paradigm. You have Angela Merkel saying things like we need to create digital sovereignty. We need a a database that creates some sense of transparency about what's going on and also gives us and other companies access to data. So if we think about data as the new oil, then – That's a resource. It's being mined from us. Should we not receive some of the value for that? And a couple of interesting solutions that I'm seeing just in the last few weeks. In Toronto, Google has this smart city project called the Sidewalks Lab. And essentially what it's done is go in and take over 12 acres of the Toronto waterfront. And it has embedded sensors everywhere. So everyone's movements can be seen, how traffic patterns flow, what you do when you cross the street, how we use energy. And the upside is clear. You can imagine more efficiency, you know, smarter cities in, in all kinds of ways. But until the Toronto government decided last week to push back, all that data was going to be owned and managed by Google. So think about that. It, it's as though your very sovereignty really is being, imp- you know, impinged upon by a private entity. Finally, Toronto kind of got the, got a clue and said, you know what, let's put this in a public database, not just because officials and individual citizens might want to get access and see what's going on. But also other small and mid-sized companies need to be able to come in and play with this data and and, and and use the sort of benefits because otherwise you're going to get an effect where just one or two companies are running the entire system.
0: You mentioned intellectual property in there right at the beginning. And one thing that struck me in your book was that the tech companies have remarkably little regard for intellectual property. 100%. You know, that's a theme that keeps coming up. So obviously, they want all of us to give our content for free. So yeah. we, we in the media know that one really yeah. well. Yeah. But then beyond that, they actually have very little respect for each other's intellectual property.
1: Yeah, one of the great untold stories um, of the last 20 years has been how the patent system has been reshaped by some of the big tech players. So you mentioned content copyright. We know that they came in and just ran Shot over that. I mean, Google's – one of Google's first projects was to basically print every book and collect it online without actually asking anybody if they minded if they infringed upon copyright. Well, they also recognized that in this idea of making information free except when it's theirs, they needed patent enforcement to be looser because if you think about how innovators used to work, maybe you came up with a good idea, a new drug or some kind of new device, a silicon chip – That was a discrete thing. You got a patent on it and then you had value and then eventually it would go open source and society would would collect the benefits as well. If you're the maker of an Apple smartphone or an Android phone, there are probably 10,000 little bits and bobs of intellectual property in there. You don't want to have to pay a lot for those. So Google in particular, along with a few other tech companies, has lobbied for the last 10 years for weaker patent protection and in fact, because they had such a revolving door with the Obama administration, they were actually the biggest visitor to the White House during that time. Their former head of intellectual property actually ended up being the head of the U.S. The US Patent Office. And so you get this corrupting of the system and this kind of embedding of power that is is really – It's the sort of thing if it was happening in an emerging market, we would say, tsk, tsk, and shake our fingers and have the IMF go tell them to reform. But guess what? It's happening in in the U.S. And we know they spend a lot of money on lobbyists, much like big pharma, the banks. (laughs) Google and Amazon are the single biggest corporate lobbyists now by a number of metrics. Um, The industry itself tends to vie with big pharma and finance to be year on year the biggest industry. The other thing that has been just shocking to me is how difficult it is to get really pure academic research on these questions. So I tried to reach out during the course of the book to people that were studying these things. Inevitably, when you get to the fine print of their research, you'll see that they're bought by one side or the other. It might be Google, it might be Apple, it might be Qualcomm, but it's somebody. Very, very little research is being done independent of these firms.
0: You mentioned Amazon. We haven't really touched on that too much. I, uh, When you mentioned books, I immediately thought... The great line somebody said when Jeff Pessels announced his divorce. And I'm sorry, I don't know who said this, but it was a great line of because obviously his wife is an author. And they said, oh, she's going to be the first author who's actually made any money out of Amazon. (laughs) I had not heard that. Of course, we know how much power it has as a company. We know that it doesn't tend to pass on its, you know, it's it's very good at driving down what it pays to people, which mm-hmm. might drive up other people's costs, of mm-hmm. course. When it comes to logistics, when it comes of course to paying authors, when it comes uh, to paying publishers, I wondered what you think in terms of the dominance of Amazon. I mean, where does that go?
1: Well, Amazon is in some ways the easiest fang to explain in terms of how you might regulate it because Amazon is pretty much like a 19th century railroad. So if you go back to the Gilded Era, which by the way is the last time that corporate concentration was as high as it is now and inequality is as high as it is now. The railroad titans, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, all of those – They built the tracks, so they created the network that would become the West, really, of of America. They owned the cars that ran on those tracks, and then they would start buying up what ran in them. So they would buy coal companies or grain companies. And so pretty soon, you had these incredible monopoly powers that could even drive other big firms out of business. It became clear that that was a zero-sum game, and so you had a reformer, Louis Brandeis in the US, coming in and saying, we have to think about power differently, and we have to break up the network from the commerce. And in fact, that paradigm still exists in areas like the financial industry, where firms are allowed to do trading, but they can't always own and hoard the commodities that are being traded on their platforms. So there's there's an easy roadmap for how to think about Amazon. To me, Amazon is a wonderful platform for e-commerce. Um, in fact, it's it's so successful that now something like sixty um, percent of all online shopping in the U.S. is actually done just on that one website. It's actually even starting to vie with Google as the beginning of a search because if you're going to go search for beautiful pink scarves you're probably going to start your search on Amazon now instead of Google. So it's developing this huge platform and yet it also sells its own branded products. Now because the algorithms that it uses are watching where you go and what you do, it can draw you first and this has happened to me any number of times like I can I you know, because I've researched this, I can watch it happening. I'm being pulled towards the Amazon branded product, as opposed to three other brands that might be selling on the platform that is patently anti competitive. And so I think we are going to see regulation that splits up networks and commerce for the big tech players.
0: And with Facebook, of course, Facebook also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. And at the moment, theoretically, there would be a case that that is too dominant and collectively, and you could re break those up. Indeed. But is Facebook pushing back against that? Because. Clearly, it could make them all talk to one another in a way
1: that makes them unsplittable, right? Yes. And in fact, it's funny that you mentioned that because the minute that regulators started banding about this idea of, well, let's look at the Instagram purchase. Let's look at the WhatsApp purchase. Let's think about whether these should have really gone through because you can do that post facto. Facebook actually announced some policy changes, which they said were in the interest of your privacy. They were going to be sharing data now across those platforms in order to create a more robust ecosystem. Well, what that does is knit them all together much more tightly so that they can get ahead of the regulators. And it's not just Facebook. I mean, I'm amazed that Google, in the midst of dozens of antitrust lawsuits, dozens of privacy cases, corporate scandals, is still rolling out these secret programs where recently it had a – it was in the Wall Street Journal investigation found that it had a partnership with America's largest – sorry, second largest hospital chain where it was sharing data on 50 million people without informing either the patients or their doctors. It's doing the same thing and checking. I mean it's very, very clear to me that these companies are trying to do an enormous land grab as quickly as possible before somebody gets to them. And will somebody get? Them? What <laughs> well, do you think? I'm looking to Brussels. You know, I think that I think that it, it's possible that something quite robust is going to come out of the Competition Commission. I think that you know they've made it a real priority. I'm also interested to see in California whether there might be some interesting regulation. So California is obviously the birthplace of many of these firms, but perhaps because of that, it's also leading the way in creative ways of thinking about how to both tame big tech but also take back some of this data wealth that it has mined. So one of the ideas being floated at the moment is a digital sovereign wealth fund, where companies would have to sort of pay a digital dividend. It might be in the form of privacy violation fines, it might be in the form of some kind of percentage of their data value into this fund, which might then be used for things like infrastructure or healthcare or or pensions. And this is, again, it's really not a novel idea. Countries like Norway and, and even states like Wyoming or Alaska that are mineral rich have already done this in the physical world.
0: Yeah, we we know Norway did that obviously with oil yeah. and it would be a similar thing and it would be seeing it as a resource, right? Data as a resource exactly. rather than the oil. What can we do on a personal level? <laughs> what would you recommend? What's the first thing you tell people when you say you've written this book? What do you say to people about how, because I think
1: the public yeah. is worried about this. Yeah. well, a couple of things. I mean, shut down Facebook for starters. I mean, I, I just think... I mean, I know a lot of people love to connect that way, but it has done so much harm in its short life in terms of being a repository of hate. Also, it's interesting, you know, Jimmy Wales, who came up with Wikipedia, has actually come up with a new and different kind of model for a social network. It's not going to be using targeted advertising. It's going to be completely user supported in the same way that Wikipedia is or The Guardian, for example, would be. So that's, you know, there are alternatives now. But I guess the thing that concerns me, and this kind of brings us around to where we started is the effects on kids. And there's a lot of new research coming out that shows that from about 2011-2012, which is when the smartphone became really ubiquitous, levels of depression, anxiety, self-harm are going up in children, levels of loneliness are going up. Reading competency is declining. There was recently a sharp national drop in reading ability in the U.S. And researchers speculate that this has something to do with the fact that kids now think in 280 characters or in Instagram images. I'm hearing from professors that say that this generation of digital natives comes in and they cannot handle a core curriculum involving 200 pages of reading every week. And that to me is frightening because that speaks to our inability to think you know to have free will to to grapple with the complex problems like the one that we've just spent 45 minutes talking about if we can't do that we're in trouble so My way of dealing with this at home has frankly been the old-fashioned way. I spend a lot more time watching what my child does online. But it's interesting. That opens up a class divide because I have a lot of flexibility. I can work from home, as can my partner and my child's father. Um, So I make sure that he doesn't spend more than an hour or two a day online. The national average for a teenager in the U.S. is seven hours a day. So imagine if you don't have – the resources, either by offering other activities for your child or by watching them or, you know, it becomes a digital babysitter. And that, I suspect, is the reason that many of the tech titans have put their children in tech-free Waldorf schools.
0: Well, isn't that the telling bit is how they (laughs) actually behave. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, mm, The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice.